0: I've always been fascinated with street preachers. You know, you've seen the ones with the, the big signs. God hates everyone. You know, I, I uh, last year I went to a, a Mariners game in the summer. You know, thousands of people outside of uh, what is now a T-Mobile field, I guess. Um, thousands of people with Mariner's gear, and there's this one guy who had one of those fixed signs. It didn't say, God hates everyone. It was something that a little bit more palatable. And But he had a megaphone, and he was just super loud, just like yelling at the top of his lungs through a megaphone. People by him were like covering their ears. And I was fascinated. I just watched for a while. I was waiting for for a friend to go into the into the baseball game. I just watched him seeing how the crowd was reacting to this street preacher. And what I found really interesting is that despite how loud he was, despite the the largeness of his sign, how many people completely ignored him. Like they weren't there to see this man with the megaphone. They were there to watch baseball. It was a nice day. No one really cared about him. And so I was just wondering, like, what would possess a person to do that? Like, everyone, he he ended up talking to one guy, which was kind of interesting. The police are right around, you know, just trying to make sure that he's not, like, crazy or anything. And he talked to one person. Here in this passage, it's kind of similar. You have a feast that's going on called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was festive. It was popular. It was so popular that they referred to this, the Feast of Tabernacles, as just the feast. Like, it was, it was one of the more fun times of the year. So there are thousands of people who have come down to Jerusalem and were, were having fun and were celebrating this thing. And, and Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in the middle of the feast. And Jesus single-handedly steals the show. on purpose. That's his intention. And so, why does that happen? Well, number one, his reputation precedes him. And so he gives this audience, if if we go back through our study in John, Jesus has been doing these signs, these incredible miracles that cannot be explained in naturalistic means. And, and so, his reputation precedes him. People have heard about Jesus. They've heard that he healed the man who was paralyzed, basically, for 38 years. They heard about the water that had been turned to wine. They heard about some of these miracles that Jesus has been in. They heard about the bread and the fish, the fish and the loaves that, were, that fed five five loaves, two fish that fed 5,000 men so probably 20,000 men, women and children. They heard about all these things and so when Jesus shows up on the scene, people pay attention. He's not the guy with the megaphone, with the big sign. He's more important than that. Jesus demands that we pay attention. And then Jesus speaks he speaks differently. He speaks in such a way that demands and captivates our attention. And what I want to explore this morning is, how do we respond to what Jesus says? How do we respond to his message? He's he's got our attention. How do we respond to his message? And in this passage, we're going to see a a few different ways that people respond. Number one, some people respond by wanting to stop Jesus. Number two, some people respond by wanting to write off Jesus. And number three, some people respond by wanting to follow Jesus. Point number one, some respond by wanting to stop Jesus. Verse 25, some of the people of jerusalem therefore said is not this the man whom they seek to kill verse 30 so they were seeking to arrest him there's people who who want to stop jesus they don't want him to continue preaching the message and teaching the things that he's teaching and it's the authorities the jewish leaders of the day who are primarily wanting to stop Jesus, and the question I have is: Why would anyone want to stop someone who's who's been healing people, who's been feeding people, who's generally uh, generally been doing good for people? Like, why would anyone want to stop him? We see earlier in John chapter four that that Jesus came onto the radar of the of the authorities when they found out that. Jesus' ministry was baptizing more people than John the Baptist. Which is pretty incredible. John the Baptist was the baptizer. Like he owned that ministry. That's why he was called John the Baptizer. And at some point the authorities saw, wait a minute, Jesus, this guy Jesus and his ministry, they're baptizing more people than John the Baptist. We should probably pay attention to him. So he got on their radar, and as soon as he got on their radar, Jesus is like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go into a little bit more secluded areas. Jesus' popularity is rising. He's a rising religious authority, which from a, a Jewish standpoint uh, would also be somewhat political. It's not only religious. The, the Jewish leaders of the day were certainly the religious leaders, but they were also the civil leaders, which means they had the power to enforce laws. Not not necessarily Roman laws. The Jews were under the oppression of Rome, so that was like the the, the grandest law. But underneath that, in order to be a good Jew, you had to follow the laws of the Bible, the scriptures that they had. And the Pharisees had some power to enforce that. The Jewish authorities did. And, And so Jesus... Is up and coming. He's, he's swimming in their lane, so to speak. And he's closing ground. And so Jesus even uses that authority to critique the existing authorities. And they don't like that. And we saw that in verse 24, where Jesus saying to the authorities, He says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge by with right judgment basically saying you guys aren't judging correctly he's telling that to the authorities in front of the authorities and that's not lost on the crowd the crowd understands what's going on that's why in verse 25 or 26 and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him can it be that the authorities really know that this is the christ so the crowd understands that jesus is is, is fighting back. He's basically asserting his own authority with the existing authority, and it stands out. And the existing authorities don't like it. They're not appreciative of it. So why do these things matter to the existing authorities? Why don't they just look at the message of Jesus and not worry about his rising fame? Like, maybe his message is good. Maybe we want to promote Jesus. And I think the reason boils down to a very simple human emotion. I'll give you an illustration. When I was uh, in high school, I played basketball. And as a senior in high school, I started for the varsity team. And I remember a little bit past midway of the season... I had one really terrible game, a a game in which I missed back-to-back wide-open layups, which if you know basketball, you should not miss one wide-open layup, or people will get mad at you. I missed back-to-back wide-open layups, and I was benched. And, And I remember the next game, the coach said, you're not starting, I was like, what? And you know what? This freshman guy, he's starting over you. I was like, my heart just sunk, right? Not only am I not starting, but a freshman is starting in place of me. And I just remember feeling in my heart anger towards the coach, but I also started to feel envy towards the freshman. And now, in practices, what I'm doing, I'm going extra hard against this freshman. Like, I'm just, whenever he throws, I'm blocking it, like, with extra enthusiasm. Like, excessively yelling, you know. And the question is, why? Is it because of him, like, personally? Is it just, I just don't like this guy? No, something happened. I started to lose my position And he started to gain what I was losing, and therefore I became envious. Therefore I started to hate on him, so to speak. It's a natural human emotion, and this is exactly what's going on with Jesus. In John, you have to kind of read between the lines, but in Mark's gospel, it's clear. Pontius Pilate, who was the one responsible for the death of Jesus... He, he basically John or Mark writes this about what Pilate was was thinking in Mark chapter 15 verse 10. For he perceived this is Pilate, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. The chief priests, the, the current authorities didn't really care about the message. It, it didn't really matter what Jesus was saying. They just didn't like the fact that Jesus was starting to get the shine, that Jesus was starting to get the glory, that Jesus was starting to steal the show. And so now they want to stop Jesus. They want to arrest him, and they want to kill him. Now, we're a bunch of Christians, right? Most of us in this room. We wouldn't try to kill Jesus. We wouldn't try to stop his message. If we're not careful, even people who call themselves Christian can be working to stop Jesus' message. They can be working to apprehend the message of Jesus. Now, how, do, how would we do this? Absolutely, we can't arrest Jesus physically and like kill him again. We can't do that. But we can try to stop his message through a counter-message or a counter-gospel. Let me, let me explain. Think of what happened with tobacco companies. Once people figured out that tobacco caused cancer, what happened? We didn't, like, get rid of the tobacco company. We didn't, like, kill them or, or arrest them. Basically, what we did instead, sure, we limited, as a country, we limited their advertising so that, like, kids wouldn't see tobacco advertising. But more than that, and more effective than that, were the campaigns that talked about the drawbacks and the, the negatives of smoking, right? That was the, the way to fight the gospel of tobacco companies, was to produce a different gospel that said tobacco was evil and wrong and and unhealthy and you'll die. And it's been effective, not completely, but it has reduced the amount of people who are smoking, especially from a young age. And so the way to fight a message is not necessarily by arresting the person with the message, but you can just fight the message with a counter message. And I think Christians, even people who call themselves Christians, if we're not careful, we can fight Jesus by fighting his message with a counter-message. And we've done this. The the problem is that just like the authorities, we're all prone to desire glory for ourselves. It's just a natural human inclination. We're prone to desire it. And, and the gospel of Christ is such that it denies glory for ourselves. The gospel of Christ says Jesus is the one who saved us. Start to finish. And so all glory, all fame belongs to Jesus. And so any message, any news that begins to place less of that glory on Jesus and more of it on us is a false message. It's, it's, a, it's a counter message. And, and it's something that's really subtle and easy to do. Like Harambe, we're a, we're a church that, that cares for the poor. We're a church that has opened its building for people to sleep here every single night of the week. And if we're not careful, we can be tempted to find our glory in our works. Just the other week, there was a grand opening of the low-income Uh, housing apartments right behind us, and I went there, and I got to speak for for a few minutes. And, And you'd be surprised at how many people have heard about Harambe and are patting our backs and are saying, good job, keep at the good work, and it'd be so easy just for me to just pat my back and for us to pat our own backs and forget about the reason why we do these things. And we can easily fall into a situation where we think the good news is us doing good things and divorce it from the person who did the only good work in history that really matters. And that's Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world so that we would be made right with God, so that we could be brought into the presence of God, so that we would have a destiny of eternal life and not death. That's the good news, not the works we do. And so I just want to encourage, I'm not saying that we're doing this, but I do want to encourage us and warn us that that the gospel's not what we do or the good works we do so that we can receive glory from people, so that people can pat us on the back and make us feel like we're good because we do good. We're good because Jesus is good and he died for us. That's the only reason why we're good. That's the gospel news. And we're tempted sometimes to flip it with a counter message that's just wrong and it's unhealthy and it takes away from the, 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 the sacrifice that God made through Jesus. The beautiful thing is that Jesus' message cannot be stopped. Jesus' message, Jesus won't be stopped. No matter how much we try to stop that message, it will not be stopped. And we see it in verse 30 so they were seeking to arrest him they were seeking to confine him to apprehend him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come God is fully in control It's his timing basically that, that's what we see God's timing will not be thwarted and just because they want it to arrest him just because they want it to stop him God said I'm in control And it will not happen. You will not put me on the cross until it is time. God is in control, complete control. So we cannot stop Jesus. We might try, but we can't do it. Now the question is, if we can't stop Jesus, maybe, maybe we can write him off. Maybe we can just write him off. And that's the second way that people respond to Jesus. Some people, some just respond by writing him off. Verse 27 But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 41 and 42. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? These are excuses that they're giving. So some people are like, yeah, we should pay attention to him. Some people are like, this is the Christ. And then other people are like, yeah, but we know where he came from and we know that the the, the, the Savior actually comes from Bethlehem and he's from Galilee. So on the one hand, they thought his origins would be really mysterious, right? Like he's just going to come out of nowhere. And what they're saying is, we know exactly where you're from. You're from the town of nazareth which is in the region of galilee and it wasn't a very important town i was about to name a town that would be and i'm not going to do that because someone might be from it so um, it was an unimportant town all right and they just said no one important is going to come from that town so obviously this jesus can't be like this the one he cannot be the one In spite of like the plain and obvious signs that Jesus was doing, in spite of what he was saying, they used that excuse as a way to say he can't. Others said, you know what? We've read the scriptures. By the way, that wasn't a scripture. It didn't say he was going to come from nowhere. That's that's not in the Bible. That was something that some rabbis taught and they believed. Now, the second excuse actually is from scriptures. It does say that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David and the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And they say, well, Jesus is from Galilee, therefore he cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be the Christ. Now, interesting question. Did the crowd have their facts straight? No. The crowd did not have their facts straight. They were operating off of fake news. And it was fake news that was actually perpetuated by the authorities. They're the ones spreading it around. And if you look to the end, verse 52, uh, these these are the Jewish leaders saying, and and by the way, when I say Jewish leaders, they're all Jews. So this is not, there's no anti-Semitism going on here. Jesus is a Jew. The crowds here are Jews. These are just the authorities, the leaders, the ones in charge. Just to be clear. Verse 52, they replied, the authorities Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, they're they're not necessarily wrong in in demeaning Galilee, but what they don't understand is that Jesus wasn't born in Galilee. And they don't bother to do the investigation. If we look at Luke chapter 2, we find out where Jesus was born. Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, lived in Galilee. But Joseph was from the line of David, and his hometown was Bethlehem. So that when Caesar said, I want to do a census, everyone had to go back to their hometowns. That's where they were going to record and register people. And so when when Caesar made that proclamation, Joseph and Mary said, hey, let's go. I'm from Bethlehem, and Mary being pregnant... When they went to Bethlehem, she birthed Jesus in Bethlehem from Joseph, from the line of David. And guess what? That's prophecy fulfilled. They just didn't have the right facts. And more than that, they didn't bother to do the investigation. They could have found that out. They could have asked Jesus, hey, where were you born? But instead, they buy the superficial excuse The fake news to write him off. He cannot be the Messiah. We know where he's from. We hear his accent. We know his parents. We know he's a carpenter. He cannot be the one. Now this has very obvious relevance for today. The reason why fake news is so prevalent is because people actually want to believe fake news it reinforces what we already want to believe as if, if you think about like why Facebook was so scrutinized what we've realized is that Facebook and other social media is is often nothing more than an echo chamber what you project And what you say bounces back to you. Facebook looks at what you watch, what you read, what you click like, what you click love. And they store, not just Facebook, other social media platforms, Google and whatnot. They store all this information about you so that they can know what to serve up to you and the point is they know what you already like they know what you already believe and they serve you up more of the same so that you are never being challenged with your existing worldview and that's the sense at which if we can receive news what we think as news that just reinforces what we already believe we're going to do it and that's what what the world does and that's what what was happening even in jesus time without social media they just wanted to hear and use the things that would reinforce their their already pre-existing beliefs and this is important because what jesus is coming with he's coming with a truth that is life transforming like he's coming with News that would flip their lives upside down. It invades their worldview. It basically says, you know what? You've been going about life all wrong, and I'm here to change your worldview. And and, and guess what? People don't like their worldviews changed. It causes friction. It's painful. I have to reevaluate everything I've believed and everything I've thought and everything I've done. It's so much easier just to accept the fake news just to accept the superficial excuses that allow us to write off Jesus. The picture that we have in Jesus' time, it's it's not of the bad, evil authorities and the innocent crowd. What you have is a complicit relationship a partnership in the status quo between the authorities on the one hand and the crowds and the people on the other. They're complicit in keeping up the status quo of their religion because the authorities love their positions of power. They love the respectful greetings that they received in the marketplace They love the the glory that they received as being the leaders and and the good people and the people who kept the law. And in return, the crowds love the idea that they were confirmed as good people by being being able to call Abraham their father, by being uh, circumcised, and by donating to the temple. And as long as you did those basic superficial things, you went to the feast, you showed up, you did your thing, you checked your box, then you were good to go. And the authority said, you're good to go. And it was a complicit relationship. And Jesus was there to blow that up. To say, you know what, you're not good because of the, check, the boxes that you check, the donations you make to the temple. You're not good because your father's Abraham you're not good because you go to this festival and you raise your hands and you sing the psalms. He says, God cares about our hearts. And Jesus was coming to invade our hearts and show us that, that religion is not just about the things you do on the outside. It's about what your heart is on the inside. Out of your heart is where evil comes forth. And so he's here to change our hearts and he's here to show us a new way and and this is the message that Jesus is bringing this is what we want to write off if we can but i love how some people respond in this message some people respond some people are you know what despite all of the objections i could make clearly this man has done some things i've seen no one else do before clearly he is saying things that, I've, that I haven't heard anyone say before. And, and the third response. Some people respond by wanting to follow Jesus. And that's the last point for today. Some people respond by wanting to follow Jesus. If we can see past the superficial excuses, if we can see past uh, the desire for our, our own glory, Then we really only have one logical choice when we look at Jesus and when we see his words, it's to follow him. Let me read verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Then verse 37 through 40. You can believe, and you should believe. Now, I want to explain a little bit about the context of what's going on here, this Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's salvation back in the desert when the people of Israel were in the desert, and they needed water, and they needed provision, and God provided It was also looking forward to a future salvation, which was both political and spiritual. So you have a people, Israel, who is under Roman rule, and they've been under rule and oppression for many, many years. And so there's a sense in which they want to return to the glory days when Solomon and David reigned. They don't want to be slaves. They don't want to be oppressed. They want freedom. And so they're looking to God as the one who would ultimately bring about their freedom. But they're also looking for God as the one who would ultimately bring their spiritual freedom. Because you have this practice throughout the Old Testament and throughout their their religion, which was this idea of sacrifice, that, that that we are guilty, that we are unclean because we sin against God, and therefore we need to sacrifice animals all the time to as a way to, to cleanse us. And so they were looking for that final cleansing. But in particular, the Feast of Tabernacles focused on the metaphor of water, and it really harkened back to when God provided water in the desert, And so what they would do, there were seven days of the feast, and each day they would have this procession from the temple. The priests would go, and they would have a golden pitcher. Which I was like, wow, I I wish we had a golden pitcher. Anyhow, uh, they had a golden pitcher, and they went down to this uh, stream, the Gihon stream, that fed into the Pool of Siloam. They dipped it in there, and while they're doing that, they would have a choir That's with them. And as they're dipping, the choir would sing or shout Isaiah uh, chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so this was a, a, a feast of expectation, a feast that was permeated with this idea and theme of salvation and so they were looking to god as the one who would bring this salvation with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and they're thinking back to moses when he was the one used by god to to save them from from egypt and moses wrote about a future prophet who would be like moses that the people would listen to and Jesus is performing signs, miraculously, like Moses. And he arrives on the scene in the midst of this feast of salvation. And on the great day, as they, 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 they basically do this procession seven times, shouting the same thing. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And on the last day, Jesus stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was not using that metaphor accidentally. His timing is impeccable, and he is very clearly saying that he is fulfilling all of the symbolism that is going on in this feast. This feast of salvation, he's basically saying, I'm the one that you're celebrating about. I'm the one who's come to give you the water that will provide for you forever, that will lead you into everlasting life. That you will not have to thirst anymore. You will not have to do these rituals anymore. That you can have water now. Come to me. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus, the Savior, shows up to the salvation party. That's what's happening. And it's very different. You go back to the Mariners game, right? And you got this guy with the blow horn. like he just doesn't fit. like he's going to a baseball game. People want to watch baseball. But in this case, like the game is salvation. And Jesus, the Savior, shows up to the right game. And so the people are ready and he has the audience and he has the attention of everyone. He stills the show, which is incredible because he's the one that the show is about the Pharisees don't like it the authorities don't like it and this last section is funny and I'm going to read it starting in verse 45 some of you don't think God has a sense of humor God has a sense of humor if you don't see the uh, the humor in this then you don't have a sense of humor all right Verse 45, just picture it. I think it's hilarious. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? So remember, they sent officers out to arrest Jesus, right? And guess what? They're expecting them to come back with Jesus. They don't. <laughs> they, they, they say, Why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man no one ever spoke like this man they went to do a job and and they were redirected in their mind by the words of jesus then the then the pharisees say have you also been deceived have any of the authorities or pharisees believed in him and but the crowd that does not know the law is a curse now when they say have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed him they're obviously they're saying we're the authorities we're the ones who should know right have any of us believed him in him and then sitting in the corner over here is this guy Nicodemus who's also a Pharisee but he kind of believes but he doesn't really want to say it and so he he finally pipes up in verse 50 Nicodemus, who had gone to him. Nicodemus had gone to Jesus before, and he went in the night because he didn't want to be seen. He was afraid, but clearly something about Jesus resonated with him, and so now Nicodemus speaks up. Verse fifty: Nicodemus, who had gone before him, who was one of them, said to them, "Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does?" I think that's a fair point. And then they replied, are you from Galilee too? They're just mocking him. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What you have here is sort of you have these authorities and you've opened the door sort of behind doors and you see their true colors come out. And you see a a comparison that, that John wants us to see. Like, who really cares about the people? Who really cares about the crowds? Jesus is saying, pleading with the crowds, come to me. If you thirst, come to me, and rivers of life will pour out from you. Jesus cares about the crowds. The Pharisees behind closed doors are saying, those crowds, they're cursed. They don't know what they're talking about. The the authorities care nothing about the people. They care everything about their glory. They care everything about their position. And so in light of this, the question is, who will you trust? Who will you believe? Who will you follow? Who really has our best interests in mind? And Jesus is saying, come to me if you thirst. If you thirst, and he's not just talking about like physical thirst, though it's it's related, right? If you've ever done anything that's really exhausting, if you've run a marathon, I've never run a marathon, but if you've played basketball like five games in a row, or if you've, if you've uh, whatever you've done, you've, you've felt this idea where you're really thirsty, and the first thing you want to do is have a glass of water. I often go on really long walks, like eight or nine mile walks, and, and when I come back, I'm thirsty. Like, I want water. Your body craves it. And But what he's saying is more than that, taking that idea of thirst and applying it spiritually. Are you spiritually thirsty? Are you exhausted of trying hard to measure up and never feeling like you've measured up? Are you thirsty? Are you tired of putting up a facade that says I've got everything together, but you know in your heart you have nothing together? Are you thirsty? Are you tired of seeking after entertainment after entertainment, of binge-watching, thinking that that's going to fulfill me, and realizing and knowing that deep down that's so empty and such a vacuum? Are you thirsty? And Jesus is saying, if you have these kind of thirsts, come to him. Come to him, and he will satisfy that thirst. He will say to you, you don't have to earn your worth. I've paid for it. I've made you worthy. He will say to you, you don't have to earn your salvation. I've paid for you. You're saved. He will say to you, you don't have to pursue fleeting pleasure. After fleeting pleasure, there is pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Come to him. And when he says, he talks about these rivers of flowing uh, the, the, the flowing rivers of life. He says this is the Spirit. And, and it, what it means is there's something that really happens when we come to Jesus, when we believe in Jesus. This is, he's not just saying words that we would accept intellectually and add it to our things that we believe. He's saying that something real happens, that you get the Spirit of God with you. And then we get the fruit of the Spirit. If you go to Galatians, What do we get? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I missed one, but that's fine. Gentleness. Thank you. Like, if you want that, do we thirst for that? Do we long for that? Do we long for more peace? Do we long for more joy? Do we long for more kindness? in this world. Jesus is saying, I will give you my spirit and you will get more of that. As we walk with Jesus, Jesus grows us in that. And and this imagery of a river of life is meant so that it would extend its way outward. It's not so that we can just be a hermit being more joyful and more kind and more loving in our own little box. It's meant that it would be interactive with other people. That the kindness and the joy and the love would be a, a thing that's done in community. And that as people come to Jesus, that actually helps our community. That actually lifts up our community to to experience things that we haven't experienced apart from the Spirit of God. That's what God is doing. And that's what He's doing in this church. He's calling us to come to Him and receive from Him His Spirit. And then extend that the fruit of the Spirit outward. So that people would see how good God is and people would be freed and people would understand. They they would be able to say of Jesus, no one has ever spoke like Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, would you do with your word what you've always done? Would you draw people to yourself? Lord, would you help us to see the ways in which we've exhausted ourselves seeking after things which do not quench our thirst? Lord, would you help us to to take you at your word and and come to you to believe, Lord, that you've given us life everlasting, everlasting, that you've given us your spirit that enables us to walk in a new life with new hopes, new dreams. Lord, we thank you that our sins are washed away by your blood. Lord, we thank you that we've been made new, that we've been made clean, Lord that we don't have to go through rituals and sacrifices to appease you but Lord you've given us the ultimate sacrifice to make us family with you help us to know that help us to live on the basis of that truth to test you at your word come and drink. Father, we pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.